0: Who Gets to Decide? A liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, all right. Welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide? This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining me today. Today, what I want to talk about is Russia and Ukraine... And I want to talk about it from a perspective of empire. And some of you might be thinking, you know, Seth, what are you talking about, empire? What What do you mean? I mean, what What is this all about? And what I want to say about this is the the United States has has had a very dominant position around the world, and there's there's several things that. That contribute to this uh, position of authority, and it really all starts for the um, for the time period following World War II. And so, essentially, what what you have after World War II is you have the entire industrial civilized world is destroyed after World War II, and the United States has all the gold and has all the productive capacity in the entire world. So after World War II, there was this summit that took place in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. And the purpose of this summit was to basically discuss the New World Order. And the context of this discussion was in the backdrop of... You know, the United States had all the productive capacity in the world and had all the gold. And so consequently had all the wealth. I mean, that was the implication. And so in this conference, one of the things they determined is that um, the new world order, the new financial standard would be the U.S. dollar. At this time, the U.S. dollar had never, you know, Um, defaulted, and it was a very stable currency around the world, and there was a lot of trust in the U.S. dollar. This ultimately led to um, world dominance by the United States and a situation of empire, what what essentially became an empire of the United States to control uh, trade production, oil production, and countries in the name of spreading democracy around the world. And so I I realize this could be a very controversial subject. And and I want people to try to have an open mind here. But I'm going to, I'm going to go back and I'm gonna play some clips from the European Press Club conference that took place in 2015. There's literally no unbiased type of information I can play from today's media. The uh, the the this subject has been so poisoned by the media that it's just impossible to find any kind of rational discussion on this subject. So but I think it's super important because Russia has been vilified in the media to the point where, you know, they can't really get a fair hearing. And, uh, I think this is important because Russia still has a lot of nuclear weapons. It's still a a very important geopolitical foe. And we need to understand Russia in a, in a political context that, that is not, um, full of hyperbole and nationalism and, uh, you know this type of uh, hyperbolic communication that happens in our media—that Russia, everything Russia is bad, and everything United States is good. So, I'm going to play some clips from this uh, press club, European press club uh, conference that took place in 2015. Uh, there's a couple people that are going to speak. A guy named John Meershauer, a guy named uh, uh, Stephen Cohen. And there's a lady from the Nash, the Nation, excuse me, the Nation uh, Weekly magazine, who's going to speak as well, and we're going to comment on some of the some of the things they talk about. No matter what
1: you call it, we are in a new Cold War, and I could make an argument, won't do it now, that this Cold War, if it lasts, will be much more dangerous than the preceding Cold War, which we barely survived. The other turning
0: point. So we have Stephen Cohen talking about uh, a new Cold War. And, and how it's more dangerous than even the Cold War that we had in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And I think he's right. I think um, uh, one, of the, one of the things that makes it more dangerous is, is the lack of intellectual discussion around uh, Russia, what, what's, uh, what Russia's uh, intentions are, what... What the United States' intentions are, and so on and so forth. There's a tendency to just demonize Russia, uh, regardless of what Russia uh, Russia's interests are, what they're um, what they're trying to accomplish, and so on and so forth. There's no, there's just uh, no understanding there. So, I think I think Stephen's right. I think I think this is a potentially a new cold war, even in 2015. And, and today with, with 2021, almost 2022, we we definitely are in some sort of cold war with Russia, which potentially could be more dangerous than the cold war that ended in 1990.
1: In the United States, and to a certain extent, alas, in Europe, all of this has been blamed on Russia, none of it on Western policy. Never heard a critical word about American policy except for from two or three or four others in America. In particular, they call it Putin's aggression. That's a direct quote. It's all Putin's aggression. This means, in fundamental terms, that there is nothing to negotiate with Russia. Mm -hmm. Nothing. When you have a narrative that rules out any responsibility on your own part, what's to negotiate? Where's the compromise? Uh, They say that Putin may be like Hitler if a man's like Hitler, you don't negotiate with
0: him, you destroy him. So let's back up a little bit here. After World War II, we established in the West NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And this initially was set up to resist aggression from the East, from Russia, from the Soviet Union, into European countries and of course to back this up uh the US had a bunch of troops in Germany and all over Europe to protect this uh NATO alliance with European countries and to uh prevent Russia in the, in this case the Soviet Union from aggressing against Europe and the the thing about it is is like you know, it's, it's kind of like a government program, right? Once you institute a government program, it, it lives forever. And it's kind of the situation we have with NATO. NATO is a situation where maybe it was good for its time, but like any government program, it tends to want to grow. And the direction that NATO wants to grow is it wants to grow to the east toward Russia. And the problem with this is it gets in the way of us having any kind of peaceful relationship with Russia. And you can see this, um, you know, with, with the, again, you have to kind of look at it from Russia's perspective. If I, um, and Dave Smith said this, and I think this is a great way to think about this. If I say to you, hey, uh, I don't like you. Uh, if I see you in my state, okay, think about a state here. If I see you in my state, I'm going to beat you up or I'm going to confront you, okay? Well, you as the person receiving that message might say, okay, well, I'll just stay out of your state and we probably won't have a conflict. Now, if I, if I take it a step further and I say, if I see you in my city, um i'm going to beat you up okay and you might say well okay you know i'm not i don't have any plans to come to your city so you know i'm we're probably going to be okay there's probably not going to be any conflict with us now if i say to you uh you know i've moved into the neighborhood let's say now i'm in your neighborhood you haven't moved the whole time you've been where you are okay But I move into your neighborhood and I say to you, if I see you at the end of my street, well, there's going to be a problem. We're going to have a conflict. And even then, even at that point, you might say, well, um, okay, I'll stay off your street, you know. But then, if I move next door to you and I and I say to you, if I see you even come out of your house. I'm going to shoot you dead on the spot. Well, now it's when you look at that, you say to yourself, well, who's the aggressor in that situation? And I, I I don't think it's, I don't think it's clear that, you know, the person that lived in the same house for the whole time, who is now being confronted with somebody who's moved next door to them and wants to aim guns at them is, uh, is the aggressor, right? So, um, this is kind of the situation Russia is faced with. And I think, I think to really understand the situation, you have to kind of see it from their perspective and, and begin to see that they're not the aggressor in this situation. It's NATO, it's Europe, it's the West, meaning America. And I think they have uh, real grounds for being upset about it.
1: This problem began in the 1990s when the Clinton administration adopted a winner-take-all policy toward post-Soviet Russia on the premise that the United States had won the Cold War and therefore Russia moved roughly akin to Japan and Germany after World War II. They adopted a policy that was spearheaded by NATO expansion, but there was a lot more than that. They pursued a form of negotiation of diplomacy called selective cooperation. If you deconstruct it, it means Russia gives, we take. This meant that the United States was entitled to a sphere or zone of influence as large as it wished, right up to Russia's borders, and Russia was entitled to no sphere of influence at all, not even in Georgia, the entryway to the Caucasus, or in Ukraine, uh, with which Russia had been intermarried for centuries literally.
0: So Stephen Cohen brings up the sphere of influence, and it just exactly makes my point previously, is that the United States could expand its sphere of influence, in this case via NATO, without any resistance whatsoever. But Russia was expected to just give ground the whole time and and not worry about their national interest. And any reasonable analysis of this would have to lead to the conclusion that what the United States was pursuing was just not tenable. So now we're going to take a step back and talk about the security model that that we basically had at the end of the Cold War and how the departure or the aggressiveness of NATO has put this security model at risk and consequently put Russia and the United States and Europe on a collision course, potentially, for conflict.
2: Creating a new security architecture in Europe that brings the Russians out of the cold and promotes peace in the region. Uh, I think that the best we can hope for at this point in time is to return to the status quo ante and by that I mean the situation that existed here in Europe before 2008. I think there's no hope of creating a radically new <coughs> architecture. There was virtually uh, no serious possibility of a conflict uh, between Russia Uh, and the West at at that point in time, uh, and all seemed to be going very well here in Europe. The question is, why was that the case? And there are two reasons. One, NATO remained intact, which meant the Americans remained committed to Europe, and the Americans basically served as the pacifier in the region. The United States was, in effect, the ultimate arbiter, a higher authority, a very powerful military presence in Europe that made it almost impossible for any of the states that fell underneath its umbrella to fight with each other. This is the principal reason that no European leader since the end of the Cold War has asked the Americans to leave. And it's the principal reasons the Russians were perfectly happy to allow the United States to remain in Western Europe after they retreated, when the cold war ended
0: so john Miersheimer's taking us back here a little bit and he's basically what he's telling us is you know look uh the soviet union lost and the united states was strong nato was strong but um you know just what's interesting here is we just couldn't be happy with the status quo we had to begin expanding NATO. And again, this goes back to the neighborhood story we talked about earlier. I mean, you know, the the Soviet Union had a huge sphere of influence and all of a sudden, you know, it's being pushed back with the presence of NATO, which is basically America, on its front porch, its front doorstep, and this is again is just not uh, an acceptable situation for Russia in this case, and it's a very tenuous kind of uh, situation for Putin. I mean, I, I think here in the West we talk about uh, Putin as a dictator and a tyrant, and, and you know he's got these oligarchs and stuff, but he has a political constituency that he has to contend with just like we do here in the United States and so he doesn't have uh, dictatorial authority like it's per, you know uh, perceived over here in the United States and um, and he has to navigate all these different power centers just like we do here.
2: But that all began to change in 2008. 2008 was a fateful year. First of all, in April of that year, you had the NATO summit in Bucharest. And at the end of that summit, uh, NATO said in no uncertain terms that both Georgia and Ukraine would become part of NATO. The Russians made it perfectly clear at the time that this was categorically unacceptable And they made it clear that they would go to great lengths to prevent that from happening.
0: So it's not like we didn't get the memo, right? Uh, There was diplomacy happening here. And we were basically told, in no uncertain terms, that um, NATO was not to be expanded into this uh, traditionally Soviet-slash-Russian territory.
2: Nevertheless, NATO did not back off. Furthermore, in May of that year, uh, the European Union announced that there was going to be an eastern partnership, which in effect
0: meant that the EU, too, would be moving eastward toward Ukraine.
2: Not surprisingly, in August of 2008, you had a war between Georgia and Russia. It came right out of the decision in April 2008 to include Ukraine and Georgia in NATO. The Georgians thought that NATO would back them uh, if they got into a crisis or a conflict with the Russians. They, of course, were wrong, but nevertheless, that was the first big piece of evidence that trouble was in store.
0: So for me, all this really stinks to high heaven. But the part that really, I guess, grates on me the most is the fact that these people in Georgia thought we were going to have their back. And we left, we hung them out to dry, you know, and the Russians just came in there and clobbered them. So, you know, this is the problem with these alliances, you know, are you know, we let's say we we get into these alliances, but do we really have the political will? Do we have the support of the population to go enforce these um, these artificial boundaries that we really have no no business uh, you know enforcing? We we don't have any say. I mean, um, I think uh, uh, Stephen Cohen er- earlier spoke about how you know there was. Uh, intermarrying in these places, uh, that, that had, uh, former Soviets marrying people in these, in these territories. So, I mean, you know, who, who has more say over what goes on in these places? The Soviets or us, the Russians or us. I mean, I would say if, if 10 or 20 million people are intermarried, then, you know, they're, I would say they're the jurisdiction of Russia, not the jurisdiction of the United States or NATO, or even Europe for that matter.
2: Uh, Barack Obama as you know got elected in November of 2008 and he came in with the goal in mind of resetting relations between Russia and the United States he failed uh, and the reason he failed is because the West uh, with the Americans in the driver's seat continued to push a policy that called for peeling Ukraine away from Russia's orbit and making it part of the West. Uh, EU expansion was one of the key strategies that underpinned that movement. NATO expansion was another strategy. And the third was democracy promotion. Democracy promotion in principle is a really attractive idea to all of us in the West. But the fact is that democracy promotion when run by the United States is really all about Toppling leaders who are seen as anti-American or anti-West, and putting in their place leaders who are pro-American or pro-West.
0: So John Mearsheimer really gets to the crux of the matter, and it is—it's the part that I take most issue with, and it's when we don't like what something when something happens over in another country. We take the position that, you know, for the sake of democracy, we need to intervene. And this is a very dangerous, very um, um, hubristic way of thinking. It, It says to the world that we, America, know better than you even know in your own country, regardless of your culture, regardless of your experience, regardless of your history, We know better than you do how you should run your country and uh, we're going to uh, insert ourselves into your process by um, launching a coup or interfering in your democratic process or any number of other things. And to me, this is really hypocritical given what we went through here in 2016 um, where the, the government, the, the national media, um, the entire intelligence community basically told us that Russia interfered with our elections and therefore, you know, uh, Trump is a crook, uh, his, his campaign sought, uh, help from Russia and so on and so forth. It's just a the whole thing was just ridiculous. And it was a hoax. And it was, it was, um, it was a bunch of people in bureaucratic roles, basically saying that Trump could not be president. And I don't even really care about that. But to prove to you that there are no white hats and black hats in this deal. Uh, America is not the white hats and Russia is not the black hats. I'm going to play a a clip from you. And this is a conversation between Victoria Nuland and uh, a guy named Jeffrey Pyatt. And these are diplomats discussing the coup that was going to take place in 2014 in Russia. Because and really what you learn later This was all about. This was all about um, Russia having access to the Crimean Peninsula and this warm water port uh, there that they had leased from Crimea, Crimea, for years, uh, dozens of tens of dozens of years. And again, this is their sphere of influence, and we were trying to alienate them from it. And this is the links to which the U.S. government was willing to go to to have its way.
3: What do you think?
4: I, I think we're in play. Um, the the uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as Deputy Prime Minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now so we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff but I think your argument to him which you'll need to make I think that's the next phone call we want to set up is exactly the one you made to to yacht and I, I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario and I'm very glad he said what he said in response
3: good so uh I don't think cleet should go into the government I don't think it's necessary I don't think it's a good idea <sighs>
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you think what in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Boak and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm kind of...
3: I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work.
4: Yeah, no, it, I, think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay, good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him as the next step?
3: My understanding from that call, but you tell me, was that the big three were going into their own meeting and that Yachts was going to offer in that context a three-way, you know, the three-plus-one conversation or three-plus-two with you. Is that not how you understood it?
4: No, I think, I mean, that's what he proposed. But I think just knowing the dynamic that's been with them where um, Klitschko's been the top dog, he's going to take a while to show up for whatever meeting they've got, and he's probably talking to his guys at this point. So. I think you reaching out directly to him helps with the personality management among the three, and it and it gives you also a chance to move fast on all this stuff and put us behind it behind it before they all sit down and he um, he explains why he doesn't like it.
3: Okay, good. I'm happy. Why don't you reach out to him and see if he wants to talk before or after?
4: Okay, will do. Thanks.
3: Okay, I've now written. Oh, one more wrinkle for you, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember if I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the UN guy, Robert Seri. Did I write you that this morning?
4: Yeah, I saw
3: that. He's now gotten both Sari and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Sari could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it. And, you know, fuck the EU.
4: No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together, because you can be pretty sure that if it, does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. And again, the fact that this is out there right now, I'm still trying to figure out in my mind why Yanukovych did that. But in the meantime, there's a party of regions faction meeting going on right now, and I'm sure there's a lively argument going on in that group at this point. But uh, anyway, we could, uh, we could land jelly set up on this one if we move fast. So let me work on, let me work on Klitschko, and if you can just keep – I think we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to um, come out here and help to midwife this thing. And then the other, the other issue is some kind of outreach to Yanukovych, but we'll probably regroup on that tomorrow as we see how things start to fall into place.
3: So on that piece, Jeff, uh, when I wrote the note, uh, Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying you need Biden, and I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and get the deeds to stick. So okay. Biden's willing.
0: Okay, great. All right. Thanks. So there you have a couple of diplomats basically deciding the fate of the Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, uh, to try to install a government in Kiev that is pro-American, anti-Russian. And just so you know, the result of this was uh, Russian involvement in Ukraine in the ultimate, uh, I don't know if you want to call it, invasion or occupation of the Crimean Peninsula, which we were trying to uh, prevent in the first place. Now you've got you know Kiev, a, a a puppet government in Kiev, who's basically you know very um, harmful to the people, especially in the uh, in the West, the Western part of Crimea, and and for what you know because we just couldn't stay off the doorstep of Ukraine, we couldn't stay off Russia's doorstep, we had to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. This would be like, uh, this would be like, okay, you live, you live somewhere. Okay. You live, you live next door to a couple. Okay. And you hear about this couple, they're having, they're having problems, you know, maybe they're having some marital problems and you're, you're, I don't know, psyche, your hubris, whatever. Um, Causes you to think. Well, I better run over there and give them some marital advice. You know, I better intervene and make sure that uh, you know they both understand. You know what it is to be married and um, what it is to live in this neighborhood. And I mean, you know, the whole thing is just really ridiculous when you when you look at it. Uh, like like if you break it down into just you know a couple of people or something. Of course the tragedy here is it's not just a couple of people it's it's a whole country and uh, these people are just pawns in American foreign policy and uh, Russia uh chess playing and so it's just a real tragedy and the in the and the worst part about it is it actually could lead to something you know even worse than than what we have now so you know this is just something the the reason i'm bringing this to your attention is because i want you to know this is what happens in global foreign policy and in the way we behave in foreign policy around the world which i think is completely unacceptable and at best and at, at worst case it's very very dangerous geopolitically
1: But it's not clear. And this is an unprecedented situation in American politics. There is no discourse, no debate, no struggle between opposing points of view where power decisions are made. This is exceedingly dangerous, and this is a failure of American democracy. Why it happened, I'm not sure.
0: Well, I think the reason it happens is what he said earlier. There's no discourse. There's no debate. You know, you've got a media that just backs the uh, liberal, aggressive uh, part of the party and the neocons, you know, just uh, without question. And that's why it's happening. It's happening because the the voices on the other side have been completely silenced um, from the media. And now you've even got, you know um, the, uh, media companies, I mean, the, um, social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google silencing, uh, these voices as well. So this is a very dangerous, uh, kind of a groupthink situation and it's probably not going to end well. Um, uh, but we, there needs to be some voices out there. And of course mine is small, but, um, there, there needs to be other voices out there with, with dissenting opinions and alternate opinions so that people can weigh in on this in a, in a way that we can exert pressure on our political class. Another person that participated in this European Press Club meeting in 2015 is uh, Katrina Vanden, I think is her name, and she's the editor of The Nation which is a weekly magazine that's been around for a long time since maybe the the forties or fifties. But she gives some uh, analysis on the the media side of the the problem. And this is a critical, critical portion of the problem that we see in America today. And, and, And keep in mind, this is in 2015 that she's speaking. And now we're in 2021, almost 2022, and if anything, it's gotten worse, right? So it's it's not gotten better; it's gotten worse. And I think she kind of summarizes things pretty succinctly, and who the you know what what the political alliances are uh, in our in our uh, body politic, and I think it's interesting. So I'll play a couple clips from her, and then we'll discuss what she talks about.
5: I would submit that American foreign policy took a turn for the worse with 9-11 because it fused American triumphalism with American paranoia, creating an even stronger informal alliance between neocons and liberal interventionists. And it is striking, if you don't know, that the neocons... And their narrative continue to write the script for U.S. foreign policy in many ways. Considering if there was accountability in the U.S. system, they would be somewhere else than filling our TV sets and our op-ed pages. And an understanding that policing the world detracts from the real security of the United States. Let me let me close by saying because I'm a member of the media, the nexus between the political class and the media is an important one. Does media coverage shape the political agenda, or vice versa? Probably both, or variously, depending on the subject. But the U.S. media, by so unequivocally accepting the official U.S. government, EU version of events, blaming all on Russia, failing to provide history, nuance, let alone complexity, is now complicit in forming a false narrative that may lead the U.S. toward war.
0: So I want to point out something one more time. This was... Recorded in 2015 at the European Press Club, and I think it was in the Netherlands. And, of course, we know we had Trump. In fact, somewhere in this uh, presentation, they talk about Hillary Clinton being the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party. But, of course, we know after 2015 came 2016 in the election of Donald Trump. And we know that for four years, the American establishment and media hounded Donald Trump on a daily basis about Russian involvement and um, Russian, you know, interference in the 2016 election. All of which, okay, every single last shred of it was not proven accurate. And yet, this, it just goes to show you the lengths to which the media, the alliance that the media has with the government, and and, and the lengths to which they'll go to control the conversation, uh, not just in this country, but worldwide. So, I mean, I think we have to be on real guard. I mean, we have to have our guard way, way up for this kind of talk and the way the media frames these discussions and to make sure that there is no um, elimination of, of discussion and dissenting opinion around various subjects when it comes to foreign policy. When it, when it comes to anything within our government, And, um, and then secondly, there, you know, I just want to reiterate and I'm going to play this next clip about, um, Katrina talks about there are no white hats and black hats. And, uh, I think that's a great point. And we need to remember that we need to remember that Russia, the government is not the Russian people. We need to remember that China, the government is not the Chinese people in the same way that you, you Americans are not the American government. I think this is an important distinction we need to understand because the state, when it goes to war, what it's really doing is going to war against a government, but it talks about you know, the people there as if they are the government, and we are not the government. The government is not us. Uh, and that's just propaganda.
5: The media malpractice, as Steve has written about in The Nation, is staggering. Most US pundits, most editorial pages, from conservative to liberal on Ukraine, on Russia, have bought into a fantasy version of events in which coup makers all wore white hats and the elected president, however corrupt, reviled, and Eastern Ukrainian citizens, along with Putin, all wore black hats. It's an alibi for a failure to have a policy, and that is what Henry Kissinger wrote last March. It is much tougher to have a real analytical understanding of what is happening. And for progressives, anti-Putin views, and many of you will understand this, have loomed large due to Russia's stance on social issues, LGBT issues, you saw that around Sochi and in general, handling of pussy Riot, handling of protests. Now, I support dissidents everywhere, free speech, right to protest champion LGBT rights, but I also understand that people must fight their own battles, build their own movements to make real change, not the kind imposed in democracy promotion, which has been so um, discredited because it is imposed from the West. It is imposed from outside.
0: This democracy promotion that she mentions is such a critical key to the United States aggression around the world. What the United States basically says is that democracy is good. The United States is a democracy and therefore the United States is good And anything that the United States does is good. And the problem with this line of thinking is that it basically gives the United States a pass to do all kinds of things, good or bad around the world and this is a terrible idea it's it it doesn't prove or um, demonstrate anything other than just an incredible and insatiable desire for power and for dominance around the world